And we're live. Welcome back. Thank you for sticking with us into our third season of the uh, Blasters and Blades podcast. Hey, are you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans? It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Michael Morton, uh, introduce himself. So can you tell our listeners and viewers who you are? Hey everyone, uh, I am Mike Morton, a retired United States Air Force, and now working for the Space Force as a civilian, and uh, and brand new author, uh, just had my first book published, so I'm looking to publish a lot more as I go forward here. Okay, and the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we first found him, and uh, I actually, he found me because he was in one of my anthologies, and then we just sort of stayed in touch when he started writing. Uh, and as you know, if you listen to this podcast for even one half a second, we try to support other veterans in the writing space. So he sort of fit the bill. I mean, he's Air Force. That's almost military, right? Almost. Yes. <laughs> almost. I got I got friends that listen that are Zoomies and they're going to like give me rations of grief. But, you know, what are you going to do? So the um, so that's how we first found him. Um, and obviously now that he's got his his novel out, we had to had to have him back. So, so thank you for coming back, by the way. I mean, you know, you worked with me professionally and, and you didn't run screaming. So that's something. No. Yeah. I had a great time writing for that, uh, uh that anthology on deadly ground. Um, yeah. Uh, Veronica Jaguer did an excellent job with that audiobook. Yeah. Now I just got to figure out how to make people more passionate about short content. So they start selling. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, that is surprising because I would have thought a lot more people would have checked that out just, just for the idea of, you know, how do you, how do you write about people who are engaged in a fight, probably their last fight, you know, something that's going to end them. And um, to, to me, that just sounds incredibly interesting. And it's, it's the kind of stories that, uh, that make up some of the battles of, of history. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, that was sort of the inspiration. So we basically took the idea of a heroic last stand and put it in, in sci-fi space, basically, and, uh, and went to town. And I, I mean, like I had letters from the, so we use Red Adept editing, and so you get different editors sometimes for the various short stories because you pay for it like a novel because they do it just by word count. But because it's a bunch of short stories to get it out quicker, they split it up. And we had a couple of the different editors that were like, their story made me cry. <laughs> and I'm like, good. That's what it's supposed to do. Uh, yeah. And so I was just I surprised that one. I was really proud of that one. And that cover Jamie Glover did. Oh, my God, that's awesome. Yeah, that that totally took me back to my early days of reading sci-fi. That was a real good throwback cover. Yeah, I actually told them, I was like, I want Battlestar Galactica meets Star Wars meets uh, Star Trek and just, you know, as a joke. And he's like, okay. And then he gave me that cover and I'm like, I was joking, but I like the cover. <laughs> um, so it's it's one of those ones. Jamie Glover does amazing covers. He doesn't get nearly enough credit for what he does. But all right, we've uh, we've rambled long enough. So before we decide whether we continue, you have to answer the religion questions. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Oh, that's a tough choice between Star Wars and Firefly. Uh, you know, I, I've watched Star Wars since the beginning. I remember seeing uh, a, a New Hope on, in the theaters. But Firefly, that that's something that just grabs you right away. Um, I probably have to go with nostalgia and say Star Wars. Okay, that's a good answer. Star Wars was great. They made those three most excellent movies. I really wish they'd revisit the property and just give me more content than those first three movies. But, you know, yeah. some things just weren't meant to be. 
All right. And because we're polytheistic, Game of Thrones, The Wheel of Time, or Conan the Barbarian? Oh, uh, that, again, nostalgia. And that's simply because of Schwarzenegger's Conan. Uh, I'd have to go with that. I, that was I probably watched that movie a dozen times when I first saw it on cable TV. And uh, it's just an amazing, amazing story to tell. We used to add, um, instead of Conan, we had uh, Lord of the Rings, but that was just so unfair to put that story in the realm to be compared against anything else. So we had to take that one out because, you know, so that's that's some steep competition. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, and then the other thing was we wanted properties that were both uh, like screen properties that were also books. So we can sort of pull in all avenues of the fan base. Um, so. Uh, listeners, if you're if you're at this part and you've got suggestions for something other than Conan that you thought is as iconic as Game of Thrones and the Wheel of Time, we would love to hear it. Put it in the comment section. We can start a debate. I mean, an argument. I mean, we can discuss it civilly, like gentlemen. Uh, but is that what we, we are? The, <laughs> sometimes I pretend. I mean, you were an officer. You kind of had to be. But like, I was a grunt. <laughs> I, I could get away with you know my knuckles dragging and you know grunting instead of talking. It worked for us. So we here at the Blasters and Blades podcast like both the fantastical and the scientific. But what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Um, probably sci-fi. Uh, the first sci-fi books that I remember reading uh, were the Tom Swift novels um, way back when. Um, and if you're not familiar with Tom Swift, he is uh, the, uh, the genius uh, teenager who can uh, solve any scientific problem uh, given enough uh, inspiration. And then he worked with his dad and a bunch of other people. Uh, his dad was like the engineer preeminent and adventurer. And they just had a bunch of a different sci-fi related uh, adventures. Um, unfortunately, the science was usually pretty hand wavy. These, a lot of these were written back in the forties and fifties, but it was super inspirational for a young kid to read those and say hey wow you know this is pretty cool this is this is a kid this isn't an adult this is a, a kid going out on these adventures and 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 having fun getting into danger but not not doing it by being stupid but by by trying to do the right thing now was it hand wavy at the time when it was written or was that what we thought would happen that's the other question because yeah you got to yeah. compare science for what they knew at the time some of it yeah some of it was was um guesswork on on how things like atomic energy would turn out and other things were just pure pure hand wavium where you know you had uh kind of what was it? it was something about he had a telescope that could also function as a microscope and uh i'm pretty sure optics don't work that way but i could be wrong yeah i all i know is that um he you know <laughs> He was a scientific mind. Heinlein actually was worked for NASA with NASA designing some of the, the spacesuits. Yeah. So it wasn't like he didn't have some some level of expertise in the field of space. So my guess would be, although I don't know, if you do know, you know, if you're a Heinlein expert, we would love to have you on and we'll make that an episode almost. But um, I, I wonder how much of that is just we've learned more since then and it didn't age well and how much of it was hand waving at the time. And I, that I wouldn't know. So, yeah, you know, was, uh, Heinlein did do, oh gosh, it was one of his anthologies where he, he wrote like 20 or 30 different predictions about the future. And, and he wrote those like in like the fifties or sixties. And then he visited them later on before his death and to see how well they had aged. Um, so it's, it's actually a pretty good read to see uh, kind of where the mind of a science fiction author goes when they're thinking 
or trying to think in the future and trying to guess at how things will evolve. Yeah. So what was your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction? Was it, you know, reading the Heinlein stories? Was it watching something on television? Like, where did you first discover it? So, so I mean, wh where did I first actually get into it? Like, yeah, what was the what was the first? Uh, you know, we ask in general, the first one was more about book related, but then we widened the question because the idea is, you know, for some people, if you're of the right age, you know, maybe the first time you encountered Specfic was watching Star Trek on the television or, yeah. or something else, you know? Yeah. Um, I did a lot of reading when I was young. Um, I actually was a big, huge uh, World War II military history fan. Um, and that was before I was even a teenager. I was I was surprising a lot of my teachers by checking out books from the more advanced sections. They're like, you can't read that. I'm like, yeah, sure I can. Um, and then um, moving on, I think I think Starship Troopers was kind of like my gateway into something else, something that could go beyond just um, fantastical adventures that were just adventures in and of themselves. Heinlein in Starship Troopers, he built a universe that, um, you know, if he had, if, if he was alive today and there was the interest, right, he could take that universe in a whole bunch of different directions and explore, you know, the, the, the bug society, the, the skinny society, or uh, how the, uh, the society and the Federation came to be. So um, go, that was what I think inspired me to check out a whole bunch of other authors in both science fiction and fantasy, because once you start reading a lot of other Heinlein stuff, you know, he does start branching out somewhere into fantasy glory road, right? That's, that's as much fantasy as it is science fiction. Um, so that's something that I really enjoyed uh, doing was, was, you know, every discovery, every new book that I, that I started to read uh, back in the, in the, in the seventies and eighties, it was opening, opening my eyes to something new. Okay. So what is it you love about the genre? Is there any one specific thing? Is it just the ability to do all the things? If you had to narrow it down. Oh, gosh. Um, I like writing about interesting characters. So I don't know that the, the it's necessarily the genre. Uh, I mean, you know, you can do as many things with fantasy as you can do with sci-fi, uh, just in different ways. But um, writing about interesting characters where the... The magic or the the fan, the uh, the fiction the science is there to support the story that the character is going through the conflicts that they're going through. To me, that's what's more interesting um, than you know having you know a, a Michael Bay type uh, you know explosions everywhere uh, uh, movie or, or plot line. Yeah, I think you know you can over rely on the technological background action instead of the characters yeah but then those movies i don't know they don't they don't resonate as well and they don't often age as well either no they don't i mean you know most of the time you don't remember who the main characters were you just remember the really cool scenes and and having really cool scenes is good right you want to have something that's that's going to grab your reader or your viewer and 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 draw them into what's going on but to keep them engaged and to keep them coming back you've got to have interesting characters Absolutely. So how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre transition into you deciding to write stories in that field? 
So that, you know, that first happened in high school. Uh, when I was a senior, I had a lot of uh, uh, electives that I could choose from. And one of them was uh, writing uh, fiction. Um, uh, what, what do they call it? Uh, oh, gosh, it's like s story development for, for the future or something like that. I don't, I don't remember. Really creative title in a, in a California high school. But the teacher was really, really good. Uh, Mrs. Elizabeth, I, I still remember her. Um, and she uh, she encouraged us all to explore not just one field of, of writing, um, but uh, anything, any field that we wanted. I remember my uh, my final essay that I wrote for her was uh, was a post-apocalyptic story uh, where a military unit is uh, was hidden away in a bunker under Mount Rushmore. And they awaken you know, as like 500 years in the future after the apocalypse. And it was their job to uh, start exploring and reestablishing the government. Um, so that, yeah, that was my first, first really, I guess, semi-serious uh, venture into trying to write something of my own rather than just reading about it. Is that, uh, is that story still available if you, your Uber fans wanted to read it? <laughs> oh, I wish, I wish I could find that notebook that I wrote that in. It's, it's, uh, it may be in the basement of my parents' house somewhere packed away, but, uh, I doubt it. Uh, it was pretty bad. You know, something that, that an 18 year old <laughs> who, who grew up in military history, uh, would write in the, in the uh, late eighties. So, uh, probably best that it doesn't see the light of day. <laughs> okay. So many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments that you think shaped you as a storyteller? Um, not so much moments, but, but people, uh, like I said, Mrs. Elizabeth, who encouraged us to, to write, uh, anything that we wanted and, and basically gave us permission to, to explore. Uh, what we were thinking and what we wanted to do. Um, the folks, uh, so my next step in, in, in writing spec fiction was on um, uh, AOL, actually. Uh, there was a bunch of us that were part of the Mercedes Lackey fandom, Arrows Online. And so we engaged in a lot of fan fiction writing. And that was a really good group of people who um, did, uh, did a lot of encouragement, a lot of help, uh, you know, uh, honest help saying, hey, look, you know, fix your grammar or, or fix your, your storytelling or whatever. But um, having people, just having a, a lot of people from a, a bunch of different backgrounds encourage you in your writing and tell you, yeah, you know what? I like the story that you're telling. I like the characters that you're creating. Do more of that. You know, that's, that's probably some of the best uh, encouragement that you can get beyond any book or class that you can take because uh, it's it, it just it hits right to the heart and and it makes you it makes you or at least it made me want to do more of it uh, uh, and and it really explore just you know how how much more can I do how many how much better can my characters be okay so I mentioned, obviously, in the beginning of this interview that, you know, you were a veteran as well. So we ask all of our military um, vet veterans this question. How do you think your time in the U.S. Air Force affects the way you, still, um, you tell stories? So, <laughs> you know, that's kind of funny. Uh, talking with some other veterans, uh, especially guys who, uh, like me, have done a lot of staff work. Um, when you're a military staff officer, uh, you get used to a number of things in your writing. Number one, you get used to producing on time uh, and quality work. Um, you get used to uh, taking criticism and, you know, not taking it personally. 
uh, you know, almost every single boss that I had that critiqued my, my staff work, uh, it was to make the product better. And if the product looked good, then I looked good. So, um, uh, I guess I'm fortunate in that respect. I've heard some horror stories about some other guys, but, uh, so when, when you write that way, uh, you know, you learn good grammar, you learn good punctuation, you learn how to write succinctly and be able to explain, uh, complex issues in as few words as possible. Um, so I found that it's translated a lot into my writing. Um, I tend to edit as I go. I don't write a draft and then go back and re-edit. Um, I will, you know, write for a little while and then I'll go back and reread what I read or what I've written because that's how I how I would uh, do it at work. Um, and I, it, it just, you know, that's that's my flow. That's how I do things. It, it works for me. So usually when I'm done finishing a short story or when I was done with my novel. I didn't need a whole lot of time at the end to go back and edit it and make make changes because it was already done as I went along. Okay. That is definitely helpful. It's a different experience than, you know, someone who, you know, is at the lower level tier, I guess, in the process. You know, the average airman, sailor, marine, soldier. Um, but I could see how that could help. So do you ever draw from people you knew when you were in the military? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, just not not a complete caricature, but you know, specific elements. Um, you know, one of the things that I also learned early on in leadership lessons is uh, it doesn't matter if you're working for a good leader or a bad leader. Uh, there's always something you can learn, whether it's how to do things or how not to do things. And the same can be said of uh, all of your coworkers, right? Uh, you know, how to be a good coworker, how to be a bad coworker. So you uh, you learn to recognize the different traits in people that uh, either you want to associate with them and you want them on a project with you or people is just, you know what, I will talk to you via email because talking to you in person only raises my blood pressure. <laughs> As per my last email. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we talked a little bit about how your time in uniform affects the way you tell the stories. How does it affect the way you engage with content as a reader? So, uh, well, as you know, most veterans, right, uh, we look for accuracy in any sort of military science fiction uh, story or, or any sort of military story. But um, I tend now to look uh, at how things are done. Um, I don't necessarily need an author to explain every aspect of his world to me. But uh, I, when things don't make sense in, in, in the author's uh, universe, on how things work, or there's jarring inconsistencies, I've noticed that that stands out a lot more to me because you know maybe I'm just expecting uh, at least there to be a process. The process itself may not make complete sense. We all know that, but at least there's a process that everyone understands and everyone follows. Okay, so Trent, and I could definitely get that. For me, I, I notice also the gun stuff. So like. If you have a six-shot revolver and they fire 12 rounds without them reloading, I notice that kind of stuff. So, yeah. you know, and the culture is the big one most people get wrong. It's very tropishly, you know, drill sergeant parade ground 1950s movie style uh, instead of what the, the people actually experience. The tricky part of that, though, is recognizing, I think, that every era of the military is slightly different. So I would hazard a guess that what I went through in the GWAT era, the global war on terror era, is not going to uh, be the same as what people that came after us are going through right now. My experience was different than the ones that were Cold War sort of time frame soldiers. 
So I do think that's another thing we have to factor in. Yeah. And, and, and you the, can go, go ahead. ahead. I was to say the attitudes, um, right. Yeah. You always got to take into account, you know, it's like when you're watching a movie or anything, you know, what, what time phrase was this written in? What was the attitudes at the time? Um, you know, my, my experiences as a young officer are probably vastly different pre GWAT than, um, any, any, uh, officer who joined after, uh, 9-11. Um, but still, you know, uh, you know, the military runs in cycles, right? You know, it's what's, what's old is new again. Um, so I think that's kind of, I guess I become kind of jaded in that respect that, you know, it's, if, if somebody introduces something new, chances are it's probably been done before, or at least tried before. And uh, it probably didn't work the last time. Um, probably need to understand why it didn't work. So we don't make the same mistakes again this time. Uh, maybe, maybe we have changed enough of the culture or whatever else is going on that this process will now work again. But understanding what that process is and why it did or did not work, that's, that's now where I guess I'm at in in understanding the the DOD, you know, I do a lot of work now in my current job working with uh, the Department of Defense and 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 the the air staff and, and space staff on acquiring new weapon systems, and um, it's it's a it's a it's that cycle. It's it's you know, hey, we we should do things this way. Well, we tried to do that 20 years ago. And it didn't work then because we didn't either have, you know, these policies in place or we didn't have the budget or we just didn't have the technologically minded people to make it happen. Um, two of those three things have changed now. OK, maybe we can give it another try or, hey, nothing's changed. So now how do I write this, the, the position paper to tell my boss, uh, sir, this ain't going to work and this is why. And we probably shouldn't get behind this because it's going to fail miserably. So before we move on to talking about things from a fangirl, I have to say, since you've got the connection to weapon system, I'm just saying next time you're talking to the man in power, rods from God, we need them. Just because it's cool to say. I mean, I, I don't know if it's functional or not, but it just sounds cool. I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying we've never seen the dark side of the moon. Just saying. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So transitioning from the writing side to the fan angle, let's talk about author milestones. You're a relatively new author. Most of your titles under your belt at this point are short stories and anthologies, which is a pretty normal way to go, kind of establish yourself. Uh, so what milestones uh, with regard to interacting with fans and such are you most excited to experience and, and you know engage in? So yeah, now that I have my first uh, novel under my belt, um, I'm going to three conventions next year, uh, Superstars uh, Writing Seminar here in Colorado Springs, um, Fantasy in Raleigh, and then uh, LibertyCon. So um, I, I won't be attending as a professional uh, for those, I don't think. I haven't heard back from them yet on that. But at least I'll be able to go. And uh, for Fallen Empires, you know, that's Canon Publishing. I'll be sitting at their table and I'll have books available to sign. So, you know, that'll be a brand new experience for me. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'm hoping people show up and at least buy one book. Uh, that would be nice. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to just talking to people about my writing. Okay, that's a that's a good one to look forward to. Um, so this is the part of the interview where it's gonna be it's gonna be a really long list, but you get to tell us everything you've written. So what uh, <laughs> what kind of stories? What kind of stories uh, were your short stories? Like, can you give us sort of the the scope of the type of stories you like to tell? 
Sure, sure. Uh, so uh, I've written quite a bit for for Canon Publishing. Uh, J.F. Holmes was the, the the guy who first discovered me um, and encouraged me to uh, start writing professionally. Um, so I've written for him. Uh, I've written in, in one of his anthologies, uh, the Spring 2019 Sci-Fi Anthology. That was a, a, a military sci-fi. Uh, there's a, a couple of officers who are going into Iraq uh, to look for WMD, and they end up finding a lot more than they expected. Um, I uh, was one of the founding members of Joint Task Force 13, uh, which is now run by Three Ravens Publishing. Uh, so I've written a couple of stories for that. So that's military supernatural um, with the application of, of heavy weapons and high explosives. Um, and then I have written for you. Uh, that was, I guess, on Deadly Ground would be military science fiction as well. Uh, and then uh, one, one last story for Three Ravens, uh, Misfits of Magic Anthology, which is a fantasy anthology. So that was my first foray into writing uh, fantasy science fiction or fantasy uh, uh, stories. So did you do the, uh, your call is very important to us, the uh, Tales from the Global War on Terror anthology the Three Ravens put out or will be putting out? No, I wanted to do that, but uh, at the time that it was due, I was trying to finish up uh, Silent Violence. So uh, I told Hillbilly I just couldn't make it. Yeah, I've got I got a couple of uh, some content in that one. That should be interesting. And yeah. the title is, of course, your call is very important to us because that's what they say on every time you get put on hold. Yep. Uh, at any well, the VA specifically for this anthology, yeah. but any um, bureaucratic entity is going to have that. And then elevator music in the background. Yeah. So, did, are you doing their um, their sci uh, mill sci fi one that they've got blood, sweat, and steel? I think. Did you submit to that one as well? No, because I actually have a couple of new projects under my belt that I'm working on. Um, if you want me to talk about those now, I can. Sure, we're here. Why yeah. not? Uh, so, um, I was invited by uh, Chris Kennedy Publishing to write in the Four Horsemen universe. Uh, their new Phoenix initiative. So uh, I am uh, on, on my way to uh, writing that book. I've got uh, over 10,000 words on that written. And then I was also invited by Three Ravens, by Hillbilly, to participate in the new Car Wars uh, fiction line that they are writing. So uh, I'm going to be uh, uh, trying to write both of those uh, nearly simultaneously. Brave, brave man. I write one at a time because I'm simple yeah. like that. <laughs> so well, hopefully, hopefully you don't pull your hair out. That would be bad. But uh, while all of those sound fascinating, since we're here to talk about your novel, it's pretty easy to guess. It's Silent Violence. It's Fallen Empire Volume 4. So first off, can you read Fallen Empire Volume 4 without having read anything else? Because it's sort of weirdly situated in that it's deep in the canon, but it's also other Fallen Empire stories seem to be short story collections. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so. you can totally read, uh, read each one of those books independently, although the first two, uh, the Irish Brigade and Overrun, they, uh, you know, Overrun follows Irish Brigade. Um, the idea that we came up with for that was uh, uh, kind of a universe similar to like what, uh, what uh, Hammer Slammers was or uh, Falkenberg's Legion, um, you know, the gritty uh, it, uh, violence that, uh, that mercenaries have to face uh, in, in a science fiction setting. And so we wanted to have a universe where multiple authors could write and they could write independently of each other uh, or at least, you know, not have, have have it set up where you had to read one after the other. Uh, you know, we kind of looked at uh, what was happening in The Four Horsemen and where there's, you know, 70 some odd books. Where do you start and, and do you actually have to read all of them? So it, it was a deliberate, uh, a deliberate effort to say, nope, you can read one of these. You could read all of these. It really doesn't matter. Um, there are some call outs. 
uh, like for example, in uh, in Irish Brigade, uh, I actually wrote a, a section in there for for JF when uh, they're doing the space station assault. Uh, he brought in my unit to do that, um, and then I reference uh, his unit in my novel uh, because his his uh, unit commander was the one who actually gave mine the idea to become a mercenary. So there's there's some ties between the books, but it's not necessary to to have read them all. So I. I grew up a military brat. I served for myself for eight and a half years, you know, ma, pa, apple pie, and rah, rah, flag stuff. So having said that, I sometimes have trouble getting behind the concept of the mercenary, someone who's fighting not for a cause, but just for money. Do you find, did you find that was difficult for you having been a career, you know, airman yourself to do? So I had to, th I had to really sit down and think about that. I mean, yeah, I've, I've read a ton of, of, uh, uh, military science fiction that fe featured mercenaries, the Dorsai by Gordon Dixon, and you know, like I said, Falkenberg Legion, Hammer Slammers, uh, right? And those were those were characters that you just you know you met in the middle of the situation, so you didn't at the time think about that. But when I was sitting down and writing Silent Violence, which started uh, actually while the unit was still in active service before they became mercenaries, I had to think why why did these guys become mercenaries, and um, one of the one of the themes in the fallen empire universe is is you know all, all of these races the humans and the others they've just completed an armistice that ended a very very long war and uh now we're in this situation where the governments are demobilizing on a massive scale um so there's hundreds of thousands of people military veterans who are now going to be very soon out of work and as we know, a lot of times when it happens on that scale, the government doesn't handle it very well. So what I explored in my book is um, uh, my unit commander, uh, Fremont McManus, uh, he was actually uh, selected for promotion and he was gonna be continuing on in the new vastly reduced Terran uh, Marine Corps. Um, but he looked at his unit who was gonna be demobilized en masse. And you know these are guys and gals that he's fought alongside and they've shed blood and sweat across multiple worlds. And he just found that he couldn't do it. He couldn't just take that promotion and leave them in the lurch when he knew that they were just gonna be kicked to the curb. And so that's where he gets the, uh, the inspiration from his former commander, the commander of the Irish Brigade say, hey, I, I did a private military corporation. Why don't you do one too? I, I know you can do it. And so that's he takes that idea and says, yeah, you know what? I, I'll put that to the guys and see what they want to do and see if they actually want to turn mercenary. Because the alternative is, you know, you're out on the street and you're you you maybe got a separation allowance and that's it, right? A lot of these, a lot of these, you know, you know the young guys, you know, the 18, 19, 20 year olds, they don't have the education. Uh, they have a certain skill set, which doesn't necessarily translate into the civilian world. That was something that I had to learn when I retired from the Air Force. Um, so I, I really, really had to sit down and think my way through just, you know, I'm not, I'm not just going to hand wave it and say, oh, yeah, they all decided to become mercenaries. No, there had to be a valid reason why you would give up um, a, a life as back as a civilian uh, and and choose to take up the the uh, the life of a mercenary and fight for 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 no particular government. Um, we all fight for pay, right? I mean, it's it, it's not the pay that makes you a mercenary. It's the fact that you don't support any one particular political cause. But uh, so yeah, it 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 was it was um, it was probably the most eye-opening part of writing that book is is coming up for reasons why we fight and why we should fight uh, not for a government but for a corporation. 
So have gun will travel doesn't get you very far in the civilian world. Like that skill set is very limited and niche in its versatility. Um, anybody that was a grunt can tell you that as well. Um, I know many of us at the VA are like, man, I should have picked up a trade. I should have been an auto mechanic or something. But when you're 17, you know, blowing crap up sounds fun. Um, so I, I, you know, that is definitely something to think about just, you know, what options are in the society they'd be returning to, especially after a long war. Um, are there jobs waiting for them? Um, is the is the economy going to support that? So that's definitely something to think about. Do they take the approach? And you know, we're going to pause in a minute for the commercial. But do they take the approach where like they're picking their contracts specifically um, to to a larger ideological goal, or is it just purely mercenary? So I actually uh, have to get into that as well because uh, I again I wanted it to be believable. So the first contract that they take um, was the first one that was available. Um, you know, it wasn't or available to, I should say, for their particular skill set. So uh, these guys, they're Marines. Uh, they are, uh, the, you know, the, the title is MIST, M-I-S-T, which uh, stands for Microgravity Strike Team. So think Force Recon, but, uh, you know, their specialty is, uh, you know, space station assaults, uh, boarding actions, things like that. They are the experts in working in microgravity, working in a vacuum. So to make best use of that skill set, you know, a lot of their what they do is going to take place in outer space. So the first contract that comes along to deal with that, they really don't have a choice. There's not much other prospects out there. And that becomes kind of a, a running theme throughout the book is, hey, you know, we have a very specialized skill set. There's not a whole lot of people who want to hire us and pay the amount of money that we need in order to maintain all of our suits. So we can't necessarily afford to be politically picky. Um, we're not going to, you know, we, we don't want to pick a contract and they actually go through this. We don't want a contract with a government who we know is going to screw us over. But to a certain extent, when it comes down to how do I make payroll, uh, you may have to sacrifice some of that in order to uh, be able to take care of your people. Absolutely. Um, we're going to, before we get in too deeply, though, we are going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly show for the man. Um, and since Christmas just passed, you might still be in a little bit of the spirit. So I'm sponsoring this episode myself. So let's uh, let's give Garrett and Michael Brown a listen. Ho, ho. Oh, hell. Is that sleigh bells ringing in your ears or a few rounds from an M60? You wanted the jolly fat man to bring Yuletide joy, but the season has gifted you with a heartbreaker and a life taker. Badass Santa. Grab your eggnog and camouflage candy canes. Strap on your bulletproof holiday stockings and prepare for thrills and kills. From bloodstained rebellion at the North Pole to a black ops raid on a distant planet, these 18 action-packed tales will show you Saint Nick as you have never seen him before. It's all you'll want for Christmas. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. So uh, now we're going to dive into the story itself. But before we do that, we're going to take a moment to look at this cover. 
and you can tell us the story. Like, how'd you come up with this as your cover? Um, what was the process? What was your involvement? Yeah. So, um, uh, uh, JF has a, uh, an artist that he has on contract that, uh, you know, he will uh, send uh, the ideas that we come up with. And so, you know, being that most of the rest of the units in the fallen empires are ground-based units, um, those covers, you know, I guess he had a lot to choose from to, to do those, but for this one, we really had to think about what did we want to portray? And we had seen some other art that some other artists had done uh, that we weren't able to get the rights to, but it, you know, it showed things like, uh, you know, boarding action on a battleship, or it showed, um, uh, I think there was one where there was, you know, these spacesuited figures that were dropping on like a moon base or something like that. And so we wanted something that showed uh, action in space. And uh, this is uh, what his artist came up with. And the moment that both of us saw this, we said, oh, yeah, this is it. This is this is exactly what we're talking about is these guys are doing. They're standing on the hull of a ship or a station and they're breaching and they're going to go through and they're going to commit violence against the guys inside. OK, I do like the uh, the acronym that you came up with, because I'm a big fan of like the ODST, the Halo lore orbital drop shop troops. Uh, and the idea of like the orbital insertion that way, which is sort of what you're going for. But, you know, obviously you can't just steal ODST as an acronym, but it's kind of on point. So whenever I see someone get creative with a solution, like I, I totally dig it. And then, of course, you know, you can't really give yours away because the minute you do, someone's going to beat you to the punch, right? Yep, yep. Because <laughs> there's only so many uh, you could come up with that sound cool, right? So I, I, I really do like Mist. I was going to make a joke that you could name one Mistborn about one of their kids, but then I realized Brandon Sanderson would get a little angry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so don't do that. We don't want, we don't want uh, Mr. Holmes getting sued. Um, I do, I do dig the cover though. So let's talk about the book itself now. So what would your 32nd elevator pitch be? Uh, 32nd elevator pitch. Okay. So um, what do you do when everything you know about your military career is turned on its ear? Everything that you have fought for and bled for is changing. And the people that you've worked with are now being kicked to the curb. What is your option? It's one of the options is to become a private military corporation or a mercenary. And now you're going to have that opportunity to fight for the people that are alongside you rather than a government who is impersonal and ignoring everything that you accomplish. Okay. So what do you think makes both the story and the series special? So, so answer kind of both, but in whatever order makes the most sense to you. Um, so I like the series. I like the universe that we came up with. Um, you know, it started out with, um, uh, you know, the, the fall of the Holy Roman empire, but in space and 500 years in the future. Uh, so you have the, the Grassian Empire, it's collapsing under its own internal politics. You have the humans and the other subject races now fighting for their freedom, um, which ended, uh, ended in that armistice that I talked about and a creation of a demilitarized zone where um, you know, all, the, all these nations said, okay, you know, we're, we're not gonna try and overtly spread influence here. And so that le led to the perfect writing ground for these mercenary units. Um, it, it, it was really an, an, an open universe with only the, you know, the, we wrote a Bible ahead of time as to how things would work and what level of technology we, we would, uh, we would have, but, um, 
you know, any, anything can go in, in this universe. And you will see as, as other books come out, um, you know, that we're going to explore different types of units and, and how they do things, how, how do mercenary uh, units uh, uh, function in this type of environment. Uh, and for me, um, as the other authors who are writing in this uh, were talking about what they wanted to write, uh, I recognize that, they're, hey, they're all talking about ground, ground combat. You know, we, we made a rule that, you know, we're not going to do ship to ship combat. That's too impersonal. Uh, and I said, you know, there's there's nobody writing about real space Marines. These guys who are out there in their suits in the cold vacuum of space. And of course, at, at the time we were coming up with this, uh, the Expanse TV series was was huge. So uh, I drew a lot of uh, a lot of personal inspiration from that and 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 how uh, how to uh, uh, make violence in space uh more personable right uh too many times all you see is this helmeted figure that uh that uh is in the distance and you don't see who's behind the visor so i i wanted to to get beyond that and and make this uh what we talked about which is you know a nitty gritty level of violence uh that is the individual trooper trying to fight his way uh to uh, complete his contract okay so which tropes do you feel like silent violence, which I think is a, a nicely alliterated title, uh, hits the best? So, you know, that's funny. The, the, the title actually comes from the unit's motto, which is uh, violentium in silentium, which is violence in silence. Uh, so that's where we, we flip that around and turn that into the, uh, the, the title of the book. Um, the tropes that, uh, that this uh, takes after, well, you mentioned ODST. And uh, kind of the, the halo perspective, um, you know, I drew also from Starship Troopers, but uh, it's it's um, it's about um, fighting for each other, uh, fighting for the for the guy, the you know, your buddy alongside you, um, uh, fighting against uh, the evil corporations, right? I've I've got uh, I've got one evil and one not so evil corporation in this book. They're duking it out, and the mist become kind of like a pawn in their game uh, until they find out that this pawn has uh, has uh, laser weapons. Um, so uh, I, I I didn't want to uh, to go down the mecha route. So I deliberately tried to uh, again stay away or stay in the in the in the personal trooper type of lane where it was uh, not so much about the suit but more about the man inside the suit. The hard part of doing that is. Like, and I, people like to write these elite space marine units, and like you know, in real time, you look at the Rangers or the Green Berets, or you know, Pararescue or any of the other special forces. They're well-oiled machines, and you don't have a lot of room to talk. Like you don't have a lot of need to talk. And you add to that now the impersonality or the the impersonal body armor, which covers even facial expressions. And how do you write these characters as believable and as characters with personalities? If, you know, in real life, they're probably going to be a well-oiled machine and the personality comes up out of the mission when they're chilling in the, the ready room. But most people don't want to read about them chilling in the ready room. So how you balance adding character, and that's something you, you hit on really well just a second ago, is because that is something to consider. And most people don't think about it because their exposure to the military sci-fi is just the tropes in the TV. And so, you know, they're in real life, like, good luck calling somebody Sarge. They're not going to like that. Uh, generally, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's one of those things where you got to balance the reality with the needs of the story. And, and the reality is sometimes it can be impersonal. Like, you know, 
the the shooting somebody at a distance where they might not ever see you, right? And and you yeah. factor that in because that what used to be the the sniper motto that, that was jokingly in the running cadences, you can run, you'll just die tired. Um, you you run into some of that in, in, with with some slight differences when you're writing actual void combat because it's so impersonal. So all you have is almost the voice. So I, I think you you nailed the 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 critical part of that when you were when you were just describing that. So that's pretty cool. So obviously this is military sci-fi because you said that. But what other genres or subgenres do you think this fits into? Oh wow. Um... Hmm. That's a tough one. Um, it's probably a little bit into the science fiction realm because, uh, you know, pure, pure science fiction or, or hard sci-fi, uh, because we look at, uh, from the Grossian perspective, the, the aliens who were originally in charge, uh, they were bioengineers. And so, uh, one of the things that we all tried to do in each of our books was to have like these bioengineered animals, uh, that, uh, that, uh, take the place of like robots and other things. Um, I, I tried to figure out how to, how to do that for the Marines. I had originally had this, uh, this squid, this little, uh, you know, squid about yay big that was inside a grenade and the squid had a camera attached to them. And the Marines, when they wanted to, uh, like go, go across a corner or cross, uh, you know, a covered ground, they would, uh, unleash the squid and throw them against the wall and you know around the corner so that they could then have like a remote view of what's down the corridor without actually having somebody to stick their head around there but i just i just couldn't make it believable right that you know that you know that you have these squids that function in in the vacuum of space so i unfortunately i had to drop that i added in a few other things um but uh, let's see here um other tro or other uh, other genres um is there, I, I guess drama would be, I don't know. Is, is drama a genre? Um, I, I don't know. I know it's almost, it sounds, well, I mean, it's, it's because you have female memories too, but it almost sounds like it could be men's adventure fiction, which is yeah one that mill sci-fi often falls into, but still sounds interesting. So is yeah. there going to be an audiobook for this? I am hoping there's going to be. Um, right now we're um, still waiting to hear back on how sales are doing. I guess that'll determine whether or not there's an audiobook. Um, I would really love to have that happen. I've had um, both of uh, both of the JTF 13 anthologies that I've been in. Uh, the Three Ravens has turned those into audiobooks, so uh, it's that's pretty awesome hearing a narrator like uh, like Talon Beeson uh, reading your story and and adding in the emotion that you were originally thinking when you wrote the words and having that come through in his voice. Absolutely, it changes the way you write when you have to think about some of the word echoes that aren't as big a deal when people are reading as they are when someone's reading it out loud. Yeah. So, so yeah, my wife, I would say my, my wife gives me a lot of strange looks sometimes when I'm writing, because when I write a particularly tr tricky piece of dialogue, I will read it back to myself. Kind of, I try to do it under my breath, but sometimes I get a little bit loud and she looks at me funny, like, what are you doing? But uh, I'm just, I'm just trying to get my dialogue uh, to sound natural. I mean, it could be worse. You could be writing other types of um, fiction where you read it out loud and people are going to look at you funny. Yeah. <laughs> could you imagine the romance author sitting there? Oh, geez. There's stuff and like, honest, honey, I'm not cheating. It's work. <laughs> um, so so let's talk about the story itself. What can you tell us about your main character? Is there just one or is it an uh, ensemble cast? Uh, it's okay. So there is the main character, Captain Fremont McManus. He, he is the, the lead. Um, I have um, 
a few other viewpoint characters. Um, there is um, uh, Private in the in the unit. Uh, that was some good advice that I got from uh, Shane Grease, who is a Army Colonel, uh, Infantry Colonel. He uh, he uh, gave me some feedback and said, "Hey, you need a, a viewpoint character down at the grunt level." Uh, so I included uh, uh, Private Jordan down there, uh, and he actually uh, I I really liked uh, writing him. And if I can if I get to write another book, uh, you're going to see more of him as he uh, rises in the ranks. Uh, and then I have a third viewpoint character uh, who is, uh, she is uh, a um, corporate spy, I guess is, is the best way to put it, for one of the, for the not so evil corporation in the book. And uh, she actually uh, was a lot of fun to write too, because I could step outside the military mindset and, 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 you know, say, okay, well, I know how the military would handle the situation, but if you're a corporate person and you're trying to maybe maintain the image of your corporation, how would you handle that differently? So that was a lot of fun writing from her perspective. And um, uh, she figures very prominently into the plot. Uh, the, the more I wrote her, the more I said, okay, yeah, you need to have a bigger role in what's going on here. Uh, and then the one that I had the most fun writing, he's not a viewpoint character. In other words, we don't see things from his perspective, but he's the uh, intelligence officer for the mist. And he's a retired naval captain uh, of intelligence. And he he's the sounding board for, for Fremont. And uh, the two of them get to have a lot of just, you know, one on one conversations, commander and and his intelligence officer. But also, you know, an older guy who's who's seen a lot and, and understands how how hard it is to be in command. And so uh, that allowed me to put a much more uh, uh, personable face on, you know, this stoic commander who is trying to make sure that everything is is done for best for his troops, but you know he's not allowed to to really show a whole lot of emotion or, or other uh, unusual things uh, in front of his troops. So it gave, it, like I said, it gave me the opportunity to show another side to him. Okay, so what about the secondary characters? Were there any secondary characters that you uh, were especially memorable to you? Yeah, well, I, I, so I hope this guy is memorable. Um, I have a Lance Corporal in the book who is the ultimate in the E4 Mafia that doesn't exist. Um, uh, he, he was, uh, he's the comedic relief. Uh, uh, he's, a, he's a good trooper. He just needs someone to keep him on task. Um, there's a scene uh, where they... Uh, uh, he and and uh, Jordan are on the hull of uh, a merchant. They're setting a trap for a pirate, and uh, they actually disable the the pirate ship uh, using uh, the equivalent of like an AT4. And uh, the the Lance Corporal is the one who fired the AT4, and so he's all he's all happy that they've done this because now he gets to paint a pirate kill sticker on his armor. Uh, so uh, he was he was a lot of fun to write. Um, and then there was uh, let's see here. Uh, some members of the corporate. Oh, my bad guy. One of my lead bad guys. Um, he's uh, former special operations, and um, he he was very very. Uh, he wasn't evil, right? He's he's just got a job to do. His boss gave him a, a, a job, and 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 part of that job is is to take out the mist, and so he's going to go about dismantling this military unit uh, using some of the lessons that he's learned as as a special operations officer. Uh, but he has to deal with uh, some criminal organizations, kind of like his muscle to do that. And so his distaste at having to work with these crooks when he's a, you know, a former professional military guy, uh, that made some really fun interactions, especially since he's planning on double crossing these criminals all the time or from, from the beginning. So um, 
yeah, he he was a lot of fun to write as well because I I got to I got to show um, just what what could happen behind the scenes and and uh, why it's important for a military unit to have good operational security so you're not giving away what's going on inside. OPSEC is a tricky one to make interesting, though. So it, the, it, it good on you for, for trying, because that's one of those ones that people that know would know. But for the average rank and file, it's like, eh, this is boring. Can they blow shit up? I mean, stuff. I'm sorry. We, we were trying not to cuss. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so there's a reason you don't see as much of that in fiction, because it's hard to do. So let's uh, let's talk about the um, story itself. So what... Um, what can you tell us about Captain Fremont? It is Fremont, right? Uh, Fremont McManus, yeah. Uh, people who know him well call him Free. Um, he, okay, so he, as I said, the story starts out, the, the unit's on active duty. Uh, it's one of the last battles before the armistice is signed. Um, his unit pulls off an amazing feat. They capture an enemy battleship in that action. Uh, wasn't their idea. Some admiral who wanted to, to, to grab some glory uh, sent them on that mission. Um, they took pretty horrendous casualties doing it, but they were successful, which is one of the reasons why he is uh, tagged for promotion. Um, but, uh, you know, as I said, they end up uh, becoming a mercenary unit. The first contract they take is about uh, uh, putting down a, an insurgency in this system. Uh, the, the the miners who are out there, they've gotten tired of, of the control from the from the corporation on the or the government on the main planet, and so they've said, you know what, you know, we we're the ones who know how to operate out here, so we're just going to basically stop all shipments until you give us what we want. So they bring in the mist. The mist uh, goes and and figures out uh, what's going on with these insurgents. Uh, do a little bit of uh, intelligence gathering, uh, and and figure out where the leadership are. They stage a raid on that base. Uh, so that's uh, that's like their first action as a military or as a mercenary unit. Um, it gave me a chance to to do uh, an actual assault uh, on 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 the space station from a ship that's you know uh, uh, you know a couple hundred miles away from the from the station and how that would actually play out. Uh, from there, we learn about uh, what's happening. Uh, we get introduced to the uh, to the corporations, and basically, what's going to happen is is now that this armistice has been signed, and you've got this demilitarized zone where the governments are not operating, the corporations are saying, hey, you know. We can make a lot of money out here, right? These markets are open. There's no regulation. Uh, there's no uh, government agents looking over our shoulders. So um, the system that the Mercs are in uh, becomes a host for a conference where all these corporations are going to come and present their ideas. And of course, there's going to be all sorts of, of uh, maneuvering behind the scenes. And so that's where we learn, you know, what each cor each of the two big corporations, the evil and not so evil, are trying to do in order to secure these contracts. And when you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars at stake, right, you know, things are going to start getting pretty ugly pretty quick. And uh, the mist in the meantime is trying to uh, figure out where do we get another job? We completed the first one, but we didn't like what the, how the government operated and especially the way they treated the insurgents. But we kind of don't have a choice because we're stuck in the system. We don't have our own ship. Uh, we can't get to the to any other system to get a job. And so, uh, like I said, you know, sometimes you have to say, all right, I'll go back to work for this guy, even though I know he's probably going to screw me over, uh, except I can ask, a ask for more money this time. And, so, oh, go ahead. No, no good. What, what's, what's your question? 
So when they capture the ship, do they get to uh, seize it by the laws of the sea, essentially? Well, I guess the laws of space, the void, whatever. Or did they have to turn that over? They had to, they had to turn that over, right? Yeah, was, that was another thing that uh, that I made an essential part of the story, right? So here you are, you're a professional military officer. You're used to you know rules and regulations governing how you do things. And of course, above all, the government being in charge. And now you're a mercenary, you're on your own. You have to sign a contract with somebody in order to get paid. Uh, there's a lot of legalese in there that can trip you up. And so um, part of the, the first half of the book is about the missed learning you know what, just because you signed a contract saying you're going to get paid for capturing these guys, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to turn out well for you. Uh, you know, there's there's a, there's a scene in there, I don't want to give it away, but it's basically what soured them and, and how I said, you know, what, how they treated the, the insurgents that soured the mist because it kind of painted the mist in a bad light, made them look like just these hired killers, which is not good for your professional reputation if you're trying to uh, get good contracts that 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 pay the kind of money that you want. Yeah, it's uh, it's a tricky problem, and once you dive off that road, sometimes it's hard to come back from it. So you you give your characters an interesting set of problems that they have to then find solutions for. Um, so what can you tell us? I mean, you've hinted at the bad guy is a little bit of the corporations are there any one bad guy or is it just the faceless corporation yeah so i kind of set it up uh, a little bit like star wars as a matter of fact where you have the the emperor type character who's like the vice president back on earth and he's the one who's like kind of setting up all of the pieces on the on the board um the um the former uh, special operations guy, the you know the the bad guy on the scene, right? He's the one who's the primary antagonist that's uh, up against uh, Captain McManus, and so he's the one that's um, he's hiring the criminal organization. He's setting up the pirate raids, and basically the the whole objective that of, of this uh, corporation, this evil corporation, is we want to make the security situation this in this system look so bad that none of the or other corporations want to bid on these contracts and so they'll leave and that leaves the whole playing field to this evil corporation and then they get all the contracts themselves and then they swoop in with their own security forces and quote take care of the pirates that they had hired in the first place and you know lots of money to be made um but unfortunately the mist being very good at what they do are handling the pirates on their own so now evil corporation vice president says okay these guys are too much trouble they're they're upsetting our plans. I need you to take them out. Um, and um, the the climax of the book is uh, the, uh, the the criminal organization that that was hired by these guys. They stage an assault on the dependents of the mist, right? So they go after their families, and you know, no surer way to piss off a military unit than to than to go off your after your families. And uh, that's that's the uh, the climactic assault there at the very end of the book. That probably ends badly. For, so, for, for, the, for, for, for somebody, yes. <laughs> so speaking of characters, you've just told us the hell you put them through. You, you kind of tortured them, abandoned them in the, you know, backwards, nowhere galaxy. So if you ran into them in a dark alley and they knew who you were, how do you see that interaction playing out? You're going to end up in the, in the hospital, the brig, or dead? Um, well, if it's Captain McManus, uh, probably in the hospital. Uh, not dead because that would that would look bad. Um, 
if it if it was one of his uh, troopers, especially one that had a family there uh, that that uh, was put in danger, yeah, I probably wouldn't uh, wouldn't live to survive the experience. And okay. if it was his intelligence officer, um, probably nothing would happen in the dark alley. But about three weeks later, I'd probably find uh, that my credit rating was in the trash, and uh, there was all sorts of nasty stories spreading about me on social media. Hmm. Okay. So we've talked a lot about the characters in this universe. So when you write those characters, do you have a favorite character archetype? Uh, so like I said, for, for, for Captain McManus, that was, uh, you know, my go-to character for, for a, a situation like that, right? I mean, we've all known good, good commanders. And so I wanted him to be a good commander. And so I thought about uh, all of the good commander traits that I know of, and I wanted him to espouse, which was, you know, putting his people before the mission, um, making sure they have what they need to accomplish the mission, listening to them, um, you know, the, the, all those things that it, it, that he he should do uh, in terms of of uh, of taking care of his, his unit. Um, and then for the bad guy, I didn't want him to be, uh, like I said, I didn't want him to be evil. I didn't want him to do evil just for evil's sake. Um, you know, he, like I said, he's a hired gun, this this former special operations guy. And so uh, he, to him, he's just doing a job. And parts of it may not be so nice, but it's the job. And it's what he gets paid for. He's done a hell of a lot worse when he was working for the government. So in his mind, yeah, he's he's probably, you know, advanced a, a level on the morality scale. So uh, I, I tried to avoid the obvious tropes. Uh, you can't avoid tropes altogether when you're writing. But I, I wanted to, I wanted to these these characters' actions and 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 um, why they did things to be believable to the reader. Okay, so let's take a look behind the curtain and see how the sausage was made. So sometimes when we write stories, we cut scenes out that might be interesting to the readers, but maybe go places the story didn't need. So were there any cool scenes that got cut when you were writing um, silent violence? Yeah, yeah. So originally I had, um, as part of one of the subplots, a uh, Grossian ship left over from the war that was hiding in deep space. And these guys were, you know, hardcore imperialists. Uh, you know, the empire had fallen and it's all the fault of these subject races. So we're going to take our revenge on them. And so they were doing things like uh, they were paying off pirates to operate and they were staging their own raids and uh, just basically, in general, making a, a menace of themselves. Uh, unfortunately, um, I didn't get too far in, in writing all of that out because I realized that that would, A, complicate the corporate plot that was going on and perhaps distract away from that plot. And two, uh, it would probably push the book well over 100,000 words. And that's not something I wanted to do for my first book. Um, so I, I just you know put all that in a separate file. And if I get to write another silent violence book or a follow on to this one, uh, these guys will definitely figure prominently because I really want to uh, to explore that. Right. There's got to be some diehards that are left behind who are pissed off at what happened to their empire and they want to make people pay for that. So I, I figure that's that's a good villain that we can all get behind. OK. All right. So hold on. Oop. Computer almost froze for a second. So, Silent Violence, The Fallen Empire, Volume 4. The name tells you that it's part of a series. Um, is their story done? What's next for these characters? 
and the universe, since the universe is a character. Yeah, so um, I know that uh, JF is uh, looking at uh, uh, future stories in this universe. Um, we've had uh, myself and Shane Grease, who wrote uh, Battle Drills, uh, Volume 3. Uh, Casey Moores is, I believe, thinking about a, a book in this. I don't know if he's committed to that or not. Uh, and then there's some other authors, uh, Armando Barboa, who uh, he had one of the short stories in, um, in Overrun. Um, he's also talked about uh, writing about uh, some of the early days of the uh, of the uh, the fall of the empire. So yeah, we we've got a lot of people who are looking forward to this. Um, depending on how sales go, uh, JF may ask me to write another uh, you know a follow on to Silent Violence. I would love to have that happen. Uh, so please uh, go out there, buy this book, and and if you want to read more about what happens to the mist. Okay, so. Um... The story then, it sounds like, is self-contained in this in the novel. The universe continues, but this story at least is is complete. Yes, yeah, uh, you know, there's uh, I, I wrap up the major major storyline about the evil corporation, but I leave things open for um, how these characters could develop in the future and uh, where they where they could go now that now that they've proven themselves as a capable mercenary unit. Uh, I won't say the universe is their oyster, but they're certainly getting a lot more job offers. Definitely helps. So we know that every literary universe, uh, at least the good ones, have their own internally consistent rules of science, technology, and magic. So what sort of tech can we expect from the Fallen Empire's universe? So we we didn't want to go high tech. Um, you know, stuff had to be mostly believable. Uh, we made some allowances for uh, the advances in, in the amount of years. But considering that we established that the Grossians are bioengineers, um, you know, there's no robots, uh, there's no androids, things like that. Uh, weapons, uh, because of the uh, far-flung nature of the Empire, had to be locally sustainable. So again, you know, we're not talking plasma or high-tech plasma weapons. There are some plasma weapons in the story, but they're heavy weapons, uh, you know, used uh, sporadically. Uh, there are lasers, but they're not the, the fantastical lasers that can shoot through anything. Um, you know, you have to worry about your power packs. You have to worry about your charging. Um, spaceships, we kind of, we put that in the background because, again, this is supposed to be about the in-person importance. We just established that, uh, you know, you have, there is some sort of uh, 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 hyperspace or faster than light uh, 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 space travel that's available. But that all happens in the background. Okay. So of all the tech that you invented, both for the humans and the aliens, uh, what would you want for your daily use? Yeah. So uh, myself and Lucas Markham, who's another author that uh, has expressed interest in writing in this, uh, we came up with the idea of a vibro dagger. Um, so it's, you know, it's basically a battery or a powered uh, blade that vibrates at a high speed with a monomolecular edge that can cut through a lot of stuff. And he liked it uh, because the unit that he's writing about is kind of based on the Roman legions. Uh, and so he wanted it like equivalent of a gladius. And I said, I like that because, number one, I want a shorter one, kind of like a, a naval dirk style, from, if you look at the old, like, 1800s. But also, you know, when you're fighting in the vacuum of space, I don't have to kill you to take you out of action. All I have to do is put a hole in your suit. And if I'm engaged in close combat with you and I've got a vibro dirk and you just have the butt of your weapon, uh, I'm probably going to tear open your suit before you do any damage to me. So I really like that concept. And that does, uh, you do see that in, in, uh, in my book. 
Okay. That's um I think a lot of people like the idea of the the vibro dagger. I've seen that in a lot of um universes. I, I think I wonder how many of them are ex- inspired by the uh the explosive daggers that you see divers having that shoot the uh the compressed air. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. We, we we took our inspiration from uh Warhammer 40,000 and the chain yeah. sword that they have there. Yeah. It's a fun concept. I get it. I dig it too. So what would you, uh, how would you abuse that tech if you had it in your daily life? Oh, man. Ah. Obviously, you still work for the government, so, you know, this <laughs> oh, is boy. fiction. What, what, what's that expression about Star Wars? Uh, there's a 100% chance if I had uh, powers of a Jedi, I would use them entirely and inappropriately. Um, <laughs> um, uh, let's see here. Uh, well, somebody, uh, maybe somebody who's, uh, who, uh, who pissed you off uh, in a staff meeting might find that their tires are mysteriously flat. <laughs> uh, gosh, that that's, fun. yeah, that's, that's a tough, uh, th- th- that's not something I necessarily want to admit to in, in, in the open press here. You would just play with it in a junkyard <laughs> where no one cares if you break things. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So you mentioned earlier that you did have aliens. So when you create those aliens and you can use silent violence or anything else you've written or plan on writing, um, how do you go about creating these, these creatures? Do you let your nightmares inspire you? Mother nature, um, myth and lore. Like when you create these, these uh, non-human beings, like how do you go about doing that? So, you know, that was, that was another rule that was, uh, that we put in when we were writing the Bible is, uh, we don't want the, uh, you know, Star Trek original series aliens with prosthetics, right? Um, if they're going to be non-human, they need to have something non-human about them. Um, you know, and which is hard because humans, you know, we cross so many different, uh, uh, genres of our own or so many different archetypes, um, so mostly what we went for is um, aliens who were either specialized uh, in one particular area, like we've got one race, uh, they are merchants, right? And everything for them revolves around the deal. Uh, that's their life, their culture, that shapes how they interact with everybody. Uh, we've got another race that um, they grew up uh, in a, a very dim uh, planet, Right. They had a, a really thick atmosphere, so not a whole lot of light gets through to, to the surface. So uh, for them, uh, everything that they do is uh, centered around light as a religious ritual. Um, so, you know, uh, seeing a bright light isn't just I mean, yeah, it hurts their eyes, but to them, that's a religious experience. So it was it was about focusing on specific elements of the alien race and kind of emphasizing that more than you normally would for like a human. The other trend that you have to watch for, and this is you as more collective, is people say, well, the aliens have this about them and every alien is going to be like, I don't know, afraid of the dark. And you just keep thinking like humans have certain traits. How many, you can't really say there's anything universal about humans unless you're talking pure biology, right? Yeah. And so... Uh, that is definitely, you know, that you set guidelines. I think that, you know, just makes the overall product that much better. So, um, since this interview is winding down, uh, before we let you go, was there anything about silent violence, a fallen empire volume four, uh, that we didn't ask you that you wanted to tell us? Um, well, you didn't ask me how much money they make, uh, which is good because I, 
don't really get into that. <laughs> um, we we you know we we establish the fact that there are credits, um, not dollars or any other currency, but um, we don't we didn't want to bog down in in the currency thing. So uh, just you know suffice to say that as a mercenary, um, you're usually paid pretty well. Um, but sometimes you know you have lean times, so uh, yeah, that's, that's probably something that uh, I didn't explore too lo too much of. But uh, it, who knows? It, it may come into play in the future, especially as as they uh, take on more jobs and maybe have to juggle uh, in improving their gear or or um, uh, uh, buying maybe buying a ship or something. Okay, so. Before we go, I, I did forget to ask you earlier, but what would you say the age range is for this story? So, like for the readers, because we do have some families that listen to the show together. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So there is uh, uh, swearing and cussing in the book. Uh, these are military guys, uh, and and there are some very violent scenes and scenes of violent death. So, um, you know, if uh, if you've if you think that your 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 readers uh, in your family are uh, okay handling that, then uh, by all means, it's not over the top. I didn't. Uh, I'm, I'm not uh, approaching it from that direction. But it, I, uh, for the for the any anyone who's reading it from with a military background, I wanted it to be familiar. The casual swearing that happens uh, in in day to day military life. Yeah, sometimes it's hard because you on the one hand you want to be realistic and on the other you got to tone it down for the sensibilities of people that don't get like in the infantry f is just a it's like a comma you used to use it a lot in a sense yeah um of course that my editor would tell you i use too many commas so that's another story <laughs> uh, yeah there's, so, there's a great there's a great video out there this uh a marine gunnery sergeant is giving a, a pre-mission brief to his guys before it goes out and in the space of like two minutes i think he uses the f word like 35 times that's it <laughs> well, it was only two minutes. <laughs> he, know, he had to pass some information numbers. along about the mission. <laughs> Those are rookie numbers, buddy. He's got to get that up. So uh, before we let you go, dear listener, this is the part where we hearken back to uh, days of old and we remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So do your part. Um, and it really does. It does, does make a difference. Um, in fact, you would have recently heard us talk about on a fireside chat, the value of book reviews. So if you haven't listened to that one too, and, and, you know, contribute to the, to the book economy and, and share the love that we all nerd out about anyway. So, uh, as we bring this to a close, Michael, can you tell us, uh, in the listeners, how they can find you? Sure. I am uh, primarily on Facebook. I have, uh, my, uh, author page there. Uh, you you find that in the show notes, I believe. Uh, I also have uh, an Amazon author page. Uh, that you can find uh, links to all of the anthologies and to Silent Violence. Um, I am in the process of, of setting up my own uh, uh, personal author page. Uh, just finding a, a web hosting service to do that is, is kind of tricky uh, for people who aren't used to doing that. But um, yeah, please, uh, please look for me. And uh, if, if you like my books, uh, leave a review. Tell me what you liked uh, so I can write more of that. Okay, and you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. 
You can find us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. <laughs> we have a website at anchor.fm backslash Blasters Tech and Tech Blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash Blasters Tech and Tech Blades. We do have a proper website coming. Um, got a little bit of derailed. Uh, Doc's son got into football and, you know, that sort of consumed her life for a while. Uh, but we are looking to get someone to put that website together. And again, when you're not technologically inclined, that can be a daunting thing. So I feel your pain, Michael. Um, but you can also support us on anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on. Or you can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver explodes because I think coffee goes through your liver too. But I'm not a biologist, people. But on that note. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. And on that note, Michael, thank you for stopping by. This was fun. Oh, yeah. I had a blast. Thank you for inviting me. All right. We will see you uh, later this week, people. <laughs>